0: Well, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you so much, Dan, for those kind words. Um, I just feel so honored to be here at Evergreen this morning um, for just so many reasons. One is um, I'm here with my wife, G. Uh, G. Saint John, formerly G. Sudge. She was on staff here at Evergreen uh, before we planted light, before Evergreen planted lighthouse back in 2003. So, G, do you want to stand real quick? Yeah, and just she's up here. Yeah, yeah. So. I'm really thankful that you were willing to let her go and be part of Lighthouse's church plan because if that didn't happen, I probably would have never met her and we would have never gotten married. So thank you so much for your investment in her and your generosity in sharing her uh, with Lighthouse. Um, Well, I'm so thankful that I was asked to speak on the topic of Christ-centered friendship in this series on just being a Christ-centered church and Christ-centered living. Not because I'm an expert on friendship. I'm sometimes really slow in texting people back or I never respond to Evites. It's it's not one of my strong suits. But what I love about friendship is uh, friendships in the church can be one of the most powerful sources of God's grace that we can experience in this life. Genuine, Christ-centered friendship is probably what I value most at my church at Lighthouse. There's a lot of things I value there but the relationships I have there, genuine friendships that, that show me Christ through their consistency, their candor, and, and their carefulness with my life are one of the greatest graces that God has ever given me. And I always say, that's one of the hardest things in life is, is leaving a church when you have to let go of those friendships and those relationships that you're so webbed into. Because the church is a who. It is a family. It is a group of believers. It is not just events that happen or programs that are run. It It is you, brothers and sisters, as a family, some of the friendships that most frequently take me to Christ were shaped by the discipleship culture here at Evergreen. So people, friends of mine, like Pastor Kim Kira, Pastor Gavin Kajikawa, and my best friend, G, were all—their ministry in my life were all shaped by the discipleship culture here at Evergreen. It's part of the legacy that you have brought into my life, so I'm incredibly thankful to stand before you and talk about the grace of friendship this morning To explore this carefully together, I'd like us to look at the main way we center our friendships on Christ, and that is communication. Communication is the primary currency of a relationship, of any relationship. It's the main way we we give and receive. It's the main way we know and understand someone. And ultimately, communication reveals what a relationship is about, why it exists in your life. So to get us started this morning, I want to just ask you a question. Who knows you? Do you have any 100% relationships? Someone who knows every category of struggle in your life, and they are familiar with the ways your heart works. This this person, they might not know every single battle of every single day, but they know every battlefield in your life. They know what the battles often look like in your heart, and they pray for you. You don't have to answer out loud, but think, do you have any 100% relationships, transparent, close friendships? I think we intuitively know that we need to be careful when sharing specifics of our lives with people. We often stick to broad categories until a relationship kind of comes to a place where we feel able to give this higher level of clearance. Right? We show a little bit more of ourselves. And friendships keep growing until maybe the most personal, most fragile details of life, perhaps the most shameful stories of our lives are shared because we believe they are gonna be shouldered by this person. They are gonna walk with us toward Christ. Well, if we're honest, very few of us have those friendships or very few of us keep those friendships up and i think one simple reason is that it's dangerous it's a risk to be that involved with someone there is risk involved we don't talk about marriage problems or sin problems with just anyone But the gospel gives us hope, especially for us as the body of Christ. The gospel gives us hope to have friendships where we don't need to fear sharing our lives. The gospel changes the reason we share our lives with each other. It changes the words we choose, and it gives us hope for every conversation. It gives us a view of people that allows us to to think of not only how can we receive but how can we give and how can we love one another in a way that moves this relationship toward Christ it's ultimately about him so again the way I'd like to come at discussing friendship this morning is by examining how we talk with each other Ephesians 4 15 says that as we speak the truth in love we grow up into in every way into him who is the head into Christ So our conversations are designed by our God to help us become like Christ together. That's what Ephesians 4.15 says. So to help us get there this morning, we're going to be looking at four steps that help us speak the truth in love, in friendship. And we're going to look at these four steps from Ephesians 4.29. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 4.29. Let me read this for us. Paul writes, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your spirit's help. As we come before your word, Lord, we need your spirit to open our eyes, to understand the grace that has been poured out in our lives. And to see that that is a grace that does not just stop with us. It is not just a grace that is shared between you and ourselves. It is a grace that you have given us to share with each other. It is a grace that animates a Christ-centered body of Christ. It it is a grace that, when it's set free in relationships, creates lives that are shaped and molded and become like Christ in the way we live and love. So Lord, I I pray that this morning, your spirit would open our eyes to that grace, both to the practical ways we can demonstrate that grace to each other and to the reality of that this grace allows us to be a cloud of witnesses, running a race, seeking Christ together, the author and finisher of our faith, who is with us every step of the way, giving us grace upon grace. So Lord, our hope is in Christ, and we pray that this time would be centered around him. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, the first step to help us speak the truth in love is consider your heart. Consider your heart. Now Paul does not say the word heart in this verse. So why am I bringing up? That is our first point. Well, in order to understand what drives our communication, we need to look at our hearts. When Paul says, let no corrupting talk proceed out of your mouths, he doesn't mean that our mouths are the source of our words, like the root source. He doesn't mean that we just need to learn clearer ways of expressing ourselves in order to share grace. He doesn't mean memorize more Bible verses or take classes on communication. Ultimately, he does want us to start where Jesus starts when he talks about our words, with what's going on inside of us, with looking at why we say the things we do. Jesus says in Luke 6.45, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, what is the heart? Like I talk about it all the time as a counseling pastor because I, I, I want us to think about one another's hearts. So, what is the heart? The heart is the inner person, the place where all our thoughts and desires come from. It's the part of us that says, What do I want? or Who do I worship? And that's why god says again and again throughout scripture that he wants our hearts and that's all he wants he says these these people they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me and he says in joel 2 rend your hearts and not your garments like we can put on a show for god but he doesn't want that he wants our hearts ultimately to be a faithful friend, I don't just need better communication skills, I need a passion for Christ so that I want to talk about him, so that he is in the overflow of my heart, so I will want to move my relationships toward him. Ultimately, this is the issue with evangelism, right? The reason we don't share Christ with our friends is not because we don't have enough you know, evangelism classes in our church, it's just that Christ is not in the overflow. Of our hearts. Maybe you've said things like, Man, I have no idea why I said that thing today. It just came out, it just slipped out. Well, Christ is saying that our words simply express what's in our hearts. Our mouths can only speak about the things we desire, fear, and the things that control our hearts. Think about a conversation you had recently that lasted longer than 30 seconds. All right, so just think about that exchange, right? In that communication exchange, you have a window into your heart. What do those words reveal about your heart? Think about that conversation, like for real, think about that conversation. What did you desire in that conversation? And what did you fear? When you see the phrase out of your mouths here in Ephesians 4, 29, both Paul and Christ would want you to think overflow of the heart, right? Imagine reading the verse that way, let no corrupting talk overflow from your heart. Do you hear how that might change how we think about where the problem is, where we put put the problem when it comes to communication? The gospel changes our communication, not simply by giving us rules like tell the truth, uh, keep current, don't gossip, think before speaking, while those rules are true and right, they are just the fruit of a changed heart. The gospel changes our, com- our communication by helping us locate a much deeper problem. Our hearts must be centered on Christ if our words are going to carry His grace into our friendships. So the gospel changes our words by changing our hearts for Christ. So think about for your own life. Do you feel like you have the same arguments again and again with your spouse or with a friend? What I pray you realize through our study this morning is that there are things in your heart that you want on the inside that show themselves on the outside in arguments, cold shoulders, complaints, and resentment. Even just the, the, the things you complain about in your mind reveal desires and fears in your heart. Our communication struggles will only change as we humble our hearts before God, seek his forgiveness, and watch his grace change us from the inside out. So here are two simple suggestions, two simple practical applications for evaluating your heart before you speak to someone. Number one, pray. Go to God and ask, Father, what do I want right now that I'm not getting? What is my heart centered on right now? Is it you? Like, am, is this the things I'm feeling right now? Is it about you? Is it about your kingdom? What do I want that I'm not getting? Is it something else I'm focused on? What am I centered on? Ask God to show you what rules your heart. And, and second, not, first pray. Second, go to a mature Christian friend and say, can you check my heart on this? Can you check my heart? Like, I'm, I'm trying to talk, maybe this is you, I'm trying to talk about an issue with my spouse or with a friend or my, my kid. It just, the thing, same thing keeps coming up. But I think my heart is much more focused on getting what I want than on Christ being glorified. Can you check my heart on this? Are you ready to, to pray like that in moments of your life? Are you ready to have conversations like that with friends that will help you know your own heart? So imagine the situation. You're eating lunch with a friend, and they say to you, hey, how's it going? Like, really, how is it really going? And you say, ah, fine, busy, you know, same old. Things are, you know, up, and then they're down. It, things are okay, all right? And they keep asking, but okay, well, how are you really doing? Aside from those things, how are you really doing? Like, oh, for a friend like that. Right? They will not accept the, the short answers. And as they keep asking you, you start to think, uh, how do I get out of this, right? How do, I, how do I keep from going too deep? Maybe you start to get a little angry. Right? How dare they like, pry into, their, into my life? Like, what gives them the right? What if they start asking about stuff I'm not ready to share with anyone? Like, what if they ask about my marriage? or my sins? What gives them the right to get into my life like this? Well, there is a reason our hearts want to stay on the surface of conversations or just avoid conversations altogether. And it's not just because we don't have enough time to share or that we don't know someone well enough to share. Our hearts honestly like the surface. Am I right? Like our hearts like the surface. John 3 19 says, we like the darkness more than light. Living on the surface conceals. It conceals deeper issues. And our hearts naturally want to conceal. For you, maybe you, I feel this pressure to be the the strong stabilizer role in in your family or your circle of friends. You are the person who has to remain calm, even keel, even when the situation is kind of out of control. So you don't really ever get to talk about what you're experiencing or feeling or what makes things hard. Like You have to be the strong person in every situation. Well, honesty does not have to mean weakness or wimpiness or something creepy or gossiping or embarrassing. In fact, what our our churches need to see is a kind of honesty that is right and good and flourishes. And in a church community, it can simply start with you and me being honest with one person that we trust about our lives. There is a way to be honest in this life that is not harmful or disturbing, but is actually what life ought to be, the way relationships ought to be. Because if we are not sharing our hearts with each other, then we are never going to talk about who Christ is to us and the kinds of things that take his place in our lives. And we will never be the Christ-centered community God calls us to be. It starts with sharing our lives with each other and helping each other consider our hearts, knowing that all our words and all our actions in this life are an overflow of our hearts. So who knows you? 100%, who knows you? Who knows your heart? Who knows your 10 to 15 minute story? Who knows what happened this past week? Who knows you? To evaluate our friendships, we need to start with our hearts because everything we say next and everywhere we go next in friendship is just an overflow of those hearts, of what we hope in and what we treasure. Well, first we consider the heart. The second step in building these friendships where we speak the truth in love, the second step is we consider the person. That's our second point. Consider the person. The next question I want to ask myself is, is this good for building up? Right? To answer that question, I need to get to know the person, right? So I know how to build them up, right? So if I, I might have, like, lots of really great truths in my brain, and I'm thinking, I've got all these great ways to love people. I just can't wait to share these things, so maybe one of your favorite phrases is God is sovereign. And that is an awesome truth. God is in control of the universe. Praise God. What a comfort. But do I know how to use that phrase, God is sovereign, in a relationship, in a conversation, in a way that builds up? If I use that phrase as a kind of silver bullet um, to like fix everything my, my spouse is telling me about her struggles, maybe the anxieties she's feeling with trying to take care of the kids or struggles she's having at work. If I just say, well, God is sovereign, like I will injure her. I will misrepresent who God is in her life. Like he is maybe this cold, distant God who is aloof from our situation, but don't worry, he's in control. Like I need to figure out what, what is she experiencing right now? Because perhaps she needs to see that not only is God sovereign, he is with you in this. I need to consider the person to know how to speak the truth in love. I need to know who I'm talking to. So considering a person in a friendship involves getting to know who you're talking to and being transparent with them so they can consider you. So what should your first steps be in considering a person? How do we enter someone's world? Well, I think Philippians 2, 3-8 is one of the most beautiful pictures of how Christ considered us, and entered our world. Philippians 2, 3-8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Philippians 2, 3-8. Christ did not just give us generic advice or nice platitudes. He didn't like text us from heaven. He considered us and entered our world no matter the cost from, to him. He didn't fax or email. He came down. In counseling, I love to use Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 to define honoring. What does honoring someone else mean? So I I, I say, this is is my working definition. Honoring means, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's that's verses 3 and 4 there in Philippians 2. So what does that mean? Honoring someone says, you are more important than me. You belong to God more than you belong to me. I want to know your genuine needs. I want to learn from you, and I want to listen to you. That is honoring. You are more significant than me. The word count here, count others more significant than yourselves, in the Greek, it's not, it means to reckon someone to be more valuable. Paul is not saying consider yourself as a not valuable person and then think of everyone else as they're valuable objectively before God, as if like God likes other people more than you. That is not what Paul is saying. He, Paul is calling us to have this relational disposition that is like Christ's. He says, live with a heart that values other people above yourself. But to love like that, honoring others all the time, that would take a miracle. How is it possible to live this way? To count your children, your spouse, your friends, they are more significant than me. We can say it, but what does it even look like? Well, look at verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Have this mind, that's the kind of the command, have this mind is supported by the miracle of the gospel. It is yours in Christ Jesus. This miracle is possible because it's already been given to you in Christ It is yours in Christ Jesus. And then verses 6 through 8, he explains how he gave you and me this mind. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." All right, so let's take a moment and do some Bible study. All right, what words or phrases in verses six through eight describe Christ's humility and his service? Look at verses six through eight. I would, you could underline them if you'd like. I think it's good to, to write in our Bibles. What words or phrases in verses six through eight describe Christ's humility and service? Hopefully you start to see this kind of pattern happening. There's this descent from glory that we see in this passage. It starts off, Christ is God, right, eternal, glorious creator, but he didn't cling, he didn't grasp or cling to the glory saying, I've got to keep this, I can't let go of any outward display of deity. He said, no, and he emptied himself, and he took on the likeness of man. And then when he became a man, he didn't live a rich and prosperous life. It says he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. That's the kind of man he was. And then he lived a life of humble obedience to his father. But not only was he obedient, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you feel this kind of cascade of humility down, down, down. Down with self, down with all of his rights, down with all of his preferences, and down with his own life. Why? Why did Christ do this? I mean, there are a lot of reasons why Christ came to die for us. But why is this here? Why did Paul put this here in Philippians 2? The answer is in verses three and four. He considered considered your life more significant than his own so that you would be set free to consider other people more significant than yourself. In, In this passage, Paul is saying Christ died to support your love and humility to each other in friendship. This is your great foundation, It supports your friendship, it gives purpose to your friendship, it gives you a way to monitor progress in your friendships, and it gives you a final goal and a destination in your friendship to display the love of Christ in the gospel. So do you see how much our relationships matter to Christ? That he would give his life so that we could experience his love defining and giving hope to your friendship. Can you feel that the gospel itself is at stake in our choice to consider others above ourselves? The gospel is at stake. Have you ever been sitting with a friend and something like this happened? They didn't ask you a single question. Maybe you shared something personal and it was met with silence or they just changed the subject. If so, you know what it's like for someone not to consider you. You know what it's like to not be looked out for? You've felt dishonor. You felt alienated. Maybe you're thinking, I know I need to consider other people more, but it just feels like if I do that, Pastor Tim, like I'm just gonna be prying into their lives. Especially if they're going through something difficult, I won't know what to say. So I'd rather just not go there. I'm probably just gonna hurt them. Or perhaps you don't feel ready for someone or anyone to be transparent with you. So you cannot go deep yourself in sharing your life with someone because if they share their life with you, you're not ready. You're not ready for what they might share or how they might open up. Well, I wanna just recommend when it comes to considering the other person, start with how are you doing? And then listen for three areas. So these three, there's three things I'd like to encourage you to scan for as you start to hear them talk. And hopefully this starts to build some uh, confidence and encouragement in how to walk with others. First, praise God for the good. So this is kind of under considering the person. Praise God for the good. The person you are with is a saint and an image bearer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and if they're an unbeliever, they bear the image of their creator. So you can see God's image reflected in their life, and you can encourage them. Right, before we go looking for sin, are we on the lookout for grace? Right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts his letter to the Corinthian church with just a thankfulness, this warm thankfulness for their testimony of Christ that was among them, even though they are entrenched in crazy, like super crazy sin. I mean, he's going to spend the rest of the letter talking about just how nuts their sin is. But he starts by thanking them for their testimony for Christ. Think about the conversations you have with your friends. How often do you look for the grace of God and affirm it? Looking for the grace of God in another person's life is a skill. Our hearts kind of naturally notice wrong things. Our hearts can naturally focus on things that might bother us. Yet there is a supernatural work of grace being accomplished in your friend's life, in their heart. Are you aware of it? Do you look for it? Can you not only name the difficulties, but also name the specific ways you see Christ at work in their lives? Right, when is the last time you had a conversation with a friend that mainly highlighted the work of Christ in your friend? You know, I think personally, how good are you at locating God's grace in your own life? Right? Like, oh, God was working today in this way in my life. Like, we're pretty bad at that too. We, we, I sinned today, I saw that, but God used me today. There was grace at work. I think we're pretty bad at identifying his grace. And we need each other to help us see his grace. So that's one place to start. As someone starts to share their life, can you praise God for the good you see in their life and affirm it? Second, a second thing to look for is suffering. Can you show compassion for the hard things? So first, can you affirm the good? Second, can you show compassion for the hard things? The person in front of you that you are speaking with suffers. So can you pick up on the troubles they're facing? Do you know how to love those who suffer? Do you feel like you have to give an answer when someone is telling you about something hard in their life? Do you feel compelled to give advice? as they reveal suffering, can you help them feel safe and cared for? It could be that you are listening to a friend and they just are telling you about how rejected they felt this week on social media. They got so few likes on a post that they put up. Okay, well, while that might feel super small to you, for them, they might feel like their whole world is crumbling because their identity is found in how they are treated online. And I would say the next generation is going to continually deal with an identity issue based on who they are online and who they are in real life and who they are in Christ. So how would you compassionately walk with them in the midst of their suffering to see once again, no, this is who you are in Christ. How would you patiently help them untangle <laughs> their identity from the, maybe the shame they have been experiencing online and then see, no, this is who you are. Can you handle people's trouble with care? Do we have sentences that that recognize the hard and and communicate compassion? Well, third, lovingly confront the bad. So we first, first we uh, can praise God for the good. Second, can we show compassion for the hard? And third, can we lovingly confront the bad? The person sins who we're with. When's the last time you carefully pointed out a speck of sin in a brother or sister's eye? We can be afraid to for a lot of reasons. We might think, I only know how to like use a bulldozer slash wrecking ball, like some kind of demolition vehicle when it comes to pointing out sin. I just kind of say it like I see it. Here's the issue in your life, so get it together. And so I just choose not to talk because I just don't want to offend people. Maybe you think you're not qualified. Right, you know, hey, past Tim, I have read Matthew 7, and you know I know I'm supposed to remove the log from my own eye before I reach to remove the speck from a brother or sister's eye. So I've just got too many logs. I've got a pile of logs. And I'm just living in a log factory, and so it's gonna be years before I ever can point out someone else's sin to them. You see so many logs in your own life, so many sins, so many struggles, you decide to stay on a personal hunt for those logs in your own life. And so you live in this kind of world of of introspection, just looking inside. One day, maybe I'll be able to help someone else. And never having an eye for the sins and struggles of those around you. I, I personally love our Lord's metaphor in Matthew 7 of sticking your finger in someone else's eye to confront them, to point out sin. I think of how easily that could go wrong. And how carefully it would have to be done with so much gentleness and patience, so much trust. Who would you let stick their finger in your eye? It has to be done. It has to be done carefully with the word of God, with the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit. We must reprove one another from the pulpit and from two feet away with a hand on the shoulder, asking questions as we walk with one another, thinking through one another's hearts. In fact, in our counseling ministry uh, back at Lighthouse that I hope oversee, receive, we define confrontation as helping someone see their heart helping someone see their heart. Loving confrontation should feel like this partnership that looks at a friend from a place of humility and a posture that says, you know, I am the chief of sinners and says that there is so much grace available to us. That's what confrontation should feel like. Loving confrontation asks questions that God asked when he confronted sin. I mean, just think about the story of the Bible and how God confronted his people. Like he came with questions. Like, Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? Did, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat? Or he, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Like he knows the answers to all these questions. Why is God asking these questions? Because he wants to help them see their heart. So we can come alongside with questions like, how could this situation be a possible temptation for you? That can help them see a speck. Or when has it been hard for you to turn to God in the midst of this season? I know you've been going through a lot. When has it been hard for you to turn to God? That can help them see a speck. Or simply, how can I be praying for you? That might be the most valuable question in the church. How can I be praying for you? Because that's going to survey two things, their horizontal world and what's happening, and how they are currently seeing God and connecting God with their world. So are we considering the other person more significant than ourselves? Do we see how to consider them? Well, the third step is to consider the situation. So we first, we consider our hearts. Then we want to consider the person, more significant than ourselves. Third, consider the situation. We want to speak in a way that fits the situations that come up. All right, so here Paul is calling us to consider the occasion, the time and a place. And that affects everywhere we talk. But I want to highlight maybe just a few occasions that might come at you. So first, it affects the things we say on social media to our friends. So as I stand at this podium... I wanna be very careful with what I say. Yet social media is not set up like that. They don't want you to think super carefully about your public posts. Maybe you have enough like common sense to think super carefully about it, but there's no careful drafting process, there's no outside reviewer who's checking, there's no like peer review setup, like okay, you've gotten like 20 thumbs up, go ahead and post, right? No, I think like on Facebook, I think the filter is what's on your mind. That is not a great filter for what do I want to share with everyone I've ever met and possibly got randomly connected to. What should be in that filter is Ephesians 4.29, right? I don't know if that's going to happen, but yeah, let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That would be a great filter. When I was in high school, there was no social media. It's hard to believe that. It didn't come out until I was in college. That's when Facebook launched but now your words can move at the speed of light and land in the front of faces of thousands of people. So what are you saying? What kind of communication fits that occasion? So it affects what we say on social media. Second, it affects our timing of when we confront the wrongs of others. Confronting your spouse or child over text is not necessarily a great context for pointing a speck out in someone's eye, even if what you are saying is accurate. Because it does not provide a context where you can really partner with them and make it clear that you love them, unless you have like this super strong emoji game, which I like. Sunday Osaka has like a great emoji game I hear, right? I'd recommend waiting until you're actually with them. Other not helpful contexts for confronting would be like in front of other people, like that goes with Matthew 18. Another not helpful context for confronting five minutes before someone leaves for work or school is not helpful. Like That might be a great time to encourage or say, I'm going to be praying for you today in this way. Or can I just take a minute and pray with you before you walk out the door? You can't, you can maybe put, that fits that occasion, but you cannot carefully remove a speck from someone's eye when they're being rushed out the door. Third, as fits the occasion, I think is a call for the church of God to create occasions. One of the problems we face is that we really are too busy, and there never is that good time to talk, to help each other, to get to the heart, to reach into each other's eyes and pull out a speck. So consider opportunities you can create. Think of face-to-face time, sitting together over coffee or another beverage, right? Or side-by-side time, working together on a project, enjoying a hobby or an activity together. Your friendships here at Evergreen will grow in different ways in each context, but create that space. We must not wait for occasions to just happen, or for the church to create the occasions, or with people who have a more extroverted personality type to create all the occasions. We need to ask, how can I create space and honor this person by making room for them in my life? That is something that we are all called to do. And then once we are in those spaces, we need to ask, how do I move toward this friend with wisdom and love? How do we center on Christ? How does this context set me up for effective care for this person? Will it allow me to be engaged with what I'm hearing from them? Are there distractions? So we need to consider the situation. And finally, we need to consider the purpose of our words. And this goes back to everything we were singing and celebrating at the beginning of the service. That it may give grace to those who hear. I feel like everything in the service this morning leading up to this message was about the grace of God. From the songs we sang to to the prayers Dan prayed for us. The purpose of speaking is to give grace to those who hear. So how do our words give grace? What does that mean? First, I think we need to to define grace. It is used in the New Testament two ways. So I'm going to give you two definitions for grace. First, it is the undeserved acceptance that God gives us. We are saved by grace through faith. And second, it is the power to become like Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace is not God's long leash that lets us run around in our sin. That's not what grace is. I think we can have the wrong idea sometimes of what grace is. We need to define it and keep defining it. So if I'm like selfishly watching TV, watching TV or, or playing video games, instead of helping my wife clean up after she's cooked dinner, okay, grace is not God's permission to kind of sit on that couch and just enjoy Netflix in my selfishness. Grace is his kindness to forgive and accept me when I realize I'm in sin. And second, it is his power to get me up off of that couch and into the kitchen helping my wife. That is grace. So if, if giving grace is the purpose of our words, as Paul is saying it is here, which definition is Paul using? Definition one or definition two? Now, I'd say we can definitely use our words to do both. They can, definition one, they can forgive and accept and restore relationships. But I think in this verse specifically, Paul is talking about using our words in a way to help others become like Christ. It's the enablement definition. And I get that from the context. Ephesians 4.15, just a few verses earlier, he says that as we speak the truth in love, what happens when well, we become like Christ together? So let this hit you, God through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you wants to use your conversations that you're going to have after church today to help someone else become like Christ. Your words are part of the potter's fingers on another person's life. You get to help shape and mold by God's grace, you get to be used by him to give that grace to another person. Does that resonate with you? Have you experienced that here at Evergreen? Like when you are loved well in a relationship, do you ever have this experience like, what just happened? I just got a glimpse of my Savior in that conversation. The way he or she prayed for me just now, it just reminded me of of what I need to be focused on. Does that resonate with you? Have you experienced the grace of God coming to you in a way that changed you? that moved your heart back to Christ. I hope you've experienced that because that is what our relationships are for, that they may give grace to those who hear. Uh, Back in January of 2015, I did something kind of crazy. I ran the Walt Disney World Marathon, and I call it crazy because what I actually did was something called the Dopey Challenge. And so that's kind of crazy in the title. Um, So in the Dopey Challenge, you you run a 5K on Thursday, a 10K on Friday, a half marathon on Saturday, and a full marathon on Sunday. And uh, one of my favorite parts of any marathon is uh, the people, right? The people who come out and cheer on the runners. Usually they have these hilarious posters. I love the posters. They, They have things they say like, worst parade ever. Like, or I'm just trying to cross the street. I love that. Okay, but at this marathon, there were all these posters that said, do it for the Dole Whip. Dole Whip at the end. Free Dole Whip. Free Dole Whip at the end. And I did not know about this Dole Whip thing. So in my fatigue and cramping from the Sunday's marathon and all of the races happening the days before, those messages were a grace to me right? In, in my, it encouraged me to press on. Those signs told me there was something just ahead, something I loved that would be cold and refreshing. And that's all I started to think about. It's all I was looking for. And so when I crossed the finish line, it's, it's all, I would, all I was looking for. I, I ran past the medals, past the photo booths, like I wanted the Dole Whip. And I found out it was a lie. Yeah, now I I don't know who those people were, who wrote those signs, if they were confused or just playing a practical joke on thousands of people, but their words encouraged my heart in a certain direction until it was all that I could think about. It consumed me and it turned out to be a lie. So my point is one, please be honest when you make marathon posters. Or at least be really specific like, Sally, we have Dole Whip for only you when this marathon is over. No, my real point is this. We should boldly encourage one another. Boldly exhort one another because we have something so much greater than Dole Whip waiting for us at the end, right? We have something better right now than marathon posters or slogans or YouTube motivational videos to cheer each other on in this life. We have the grace of God to encourage us to run toward Christ. We have that to share with each other until he is all that we can kind of think about until our lives are centered on him, until we can almost taste what it will be like when we are finally with him at the end. Are our friendships a grace to each other? What happens when they are not a source of grace? I wanna kinda close by looking at giving grace at the end of verse 29, Ephesians 4, 29, next to the corrupting talk at the beginning of the verse. When Paul says corrupting talk, it's, it's this Greek word sapros, it means something that is inedible, rotten, no nutritional value, Poisonous, it's kind of used to describe rancid fish and diseased lungs and rotten fruit in scripture. It's a word of sickness and death, okay? That's what it is. And Paul is giving us this warning so that we will ask, Do my words weaken other people's, other people's faith and walk with God? This is what Paul is saying. Hey, either my words will tear someone down or they will help someone become like Christ. Just as my words can be a means of grace, my words can also rob someone of grace, rob someone of the hope that they have in Christ. And I would add that the more authority that we have, the more opportunity we have to give grace or to tear down. So how are we speaking to our children? What grace we have to share with them. But oh, what a warning this is to guard our hearts from stumbling them. Ephesians 4.15 says that we all are becoming like Christ. How? By speaking the truth in love with each other. This is true for all of us who know Christ. So how are we talking? Are we becoming like Christ together? Is that happening in our relationships? That's the whole point of our friendships in Christ as they are given to us in Christ. That's what they're there for. Is it happening? Are we becoming like Christ together? Everything we say matters. So what do we talk about? How do you talk? And what does it reveal about your heart? I love how Paul Tripp Summarizes this. He says, Our relationships have been designed as workrooms for redemption, not shelters for human happiness. Our relationships have been designed as workrooms for redemption, not shelters of human happiness. There is so much joy, a joy that cannot be told, that comes with our relationship with Christ, but it is a workroom for redemption if we're going to be, ever be able to build friendships that consider our hearts, that consider the other person is more significant than ourselves, that consider creating occasions where we can speak the truth in love and that can consider and evaluate our purpose, are we giving grace to those who hear? We need to first consider God's grace in our own life. It frees us. It sets us free from the bondage of, of living for ourselves and our own selfish kingdom so that our words can be set free and our friendships can be set free to seek the glory and the kingdom of our great Savior. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for how you have loved us in Christ in ways that are unfathomable, unsearchable. Oh Lord, I pray that we would leave this place today considering our hearts. We would turn to you in prayer. We would turn to brothers and sisters that we trust and ask for help. We would truly reflect on the grace that we have received and if it is a grace that we are sharing with one another. Father, I just thank you for Evergreen. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the legacy of love that has been passed down in the churches that they've planted, the the legacy of love that is alive at Lighthouse because of how uh, how Evergreen has just lived out a pattern, a culture of loving others as they have been loved by you. Lord, I pray that that would continue to be a legacy, that it would continue to be the story of relationships here in this culture, that Christ would be at the center and his glory would give purpose and meaning and joy and a center to every conversation that the friendships here enjoy. So Lord, may you be honored and glorified as we talk as we leave this place. In Christ's name I pray, amen.